you know, we're interested in building software that fights poverty somehow. We know that poverty is complex and has many different components and can't be solved with a single app, and that's okay. But like, hey, look, if you can't put food on the table, it's going to be real hard for you to do the other types of things needed to, to make any meaningful impact on your financial health. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. On today's episode, I spoke with Jimmy Chen. Jimmy's the founder and CEO of Propel, a software company that aims to fight poverty through technology. They're the creators of the Fresh EBT mobile app, which enables EBT cardholders to manage their benefits, save money through grocery coupons, and find jobs. It's used by over 2 million low-income Americans across the country each month, and their investors include Andreessen Horowitz and Kleiner Perkins. Jimmy was previously a product manager at Facebook, where he led the Facebook Groups team. He founded Propel to use the tools of Silicon Valley to address social issues around poverty. So why did I want to have Jimmy on the show? One of the recurring themes of Innovation for All is this idea of who is on your team matters. Our experiences impact the kinds of problems that we see and the kinds of solutions that we create. And in a world where many people in Silicon Valley look one way and have, you know, a limited set of backgrounds, that affects the kinds of problems they see and the kinds of solutions they want to create. As we've discussed in prior episodes, a lot of fintech apps just, you know, show us how much money we have in the bank. But that might not be the most appropriate solution for somebody that doesn't have a lot of money. So Jimmy Chen instead decided to focus on making technology for SNAP benefits recipients, formerly known as food stamps, making sure that they have the technology they need to use their benefits easily and effectively. So in this episode, we talk about, you know, why did he pick this route over maybe other ones? Uh, I asked him whether he had difficulty pitching this kind of startup, you know, whether venture capitalists had certain ideas about food stamp benefit recipients or whether they even got the need for this kind of product. The other thing that's interesting about the Fresh EBT app is it's this sort of free market technology solution that sits on top of a government benefit system. How does that work? How can entrepreneurs navigate that complex world between policyholders, government officials? You know, Jimmy mentions that they run into different regulations state by state. What do those challenges look like and how do they approach them? We talk about all that and more in today's episode. And a quick request, if you like Innovation for All, if you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you will share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it too. Please share it with a friend or two and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps us reach more people who want to be part of this conversation. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Jimmy Chen. I can't remember if this is true or if I misread this or just am confusing it with something else. Did you go to school with Evan Spiegel? I did, actually. I know, we didn't really know each other. It wasn't that kind of situation, but we overlapped in Stanford for a couple of years. So you were roommates. Got it. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Best friend, Evan Spiegel. I actually, uh, I did a TEDx talk a couple of years ago where I mentioned Snapchat as sort of the opposite type of company as Propel in a couple of different ways. The core point that I was trying to make is that the technology that underlies products like Snapchat or Fresh EBT actually is not so different from a fundamental point of view. It's really about how we choose to use those tools and what problems we choose to solve. I mean, this is something that we think about a lot at Propel, that the toolkit for software is pretty agnostic. You know, the same underlying tech that that powers products like like Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram um, is pretty agnostic to what problem you want to solve with it. Um, and so at Propel, through our free smartphone app called Fresh EBT that serves people on food stamps, we really try to use the best practices and most modern software tools in order to solve problems around poverty. You know, some of the, the underlying thought behind that and part of the reason that I started Propel in the first place is that I believe that people solve the problems that they, they understand. And that in particular, people who start software companies tend to understand a very specific set of problems. 
But those aren't necessarily the problems that everyone in the United States who uses software faces. In particular, most people who start software companies tend to be pretty well off from a financial point of view. But these days, everyone across the economic spectrum uses smartphones and gets on the internet. And so there's this, there's a large and growing gap between the people who build software and the people who use software. And as a result, the technology that we have in America tends to be less useful for people who are lower income. Now, this is why I'm so excited to have you here. And just, we, we kind of started off fast, uh, just to introduce you real quick. This is Jimmy Chen, founder and CEO of Propel. So I guess I'll be back up. You have this impressive background. You know, you were product manager at LinkedIn, lead product manager for, for Facebook groups, um, which I would argue is one of their, their sort of core feature offerings now, you know, Stanford grad. Why did you chose to focus on building tech for low-income Americans? Well, you know, I grew up in a loving and supportive family that also had trouble putting food on the table. You know, we had our share of financial successes and failures, as most families do. When I was young, my father lost his job, and that started a period of a couple of years of real financial hardship for us. I was fortunate to attend Stanford on a full scholarship based on financial need. And after having worked in the Valley for a handful of years at a couple of really successful software companies, you know, I really wanted to start Propel to be the blend of sort of my personal background and my professional skills to build the kind of tech company that my dad, that actually would have solved the problems that my family had when I was growing up. Now, and you mentioned earlier this idea that we tend to solve problems that we're experiencing. And because people in the software development community tend to be a little bit more affluent, the kinds of problems that we see being solved really aren't that important. You know, there's the convenience economy, this idea that someone can deliver a restaurant food to me or deliver my groceries to me. But, in a, you know, if you step back, those aren't really meaningful problems. I mean, they're, don't get me wrong, it's great, but there's plenty of other problems that could be solved with these amazing minds. Yeah, I wouldn't even say that they're not meaningful because I don't think it's really my place necessarily to say what problems are meaningful or not meaningful. I would say that a lot of work goes into making people who are already comfortable even more comfortable and that there are huge missed opportunities in terms of looking at the true needs of Americans who don't experience really great services on a daily basis and thinking about how do we improve their everyday experience. So we'll we'll talk about um, the Fresh EBT app in a second, but yeah, I guess, I guess let's stop here and say, so again, Propel and Fresh EBT, what are they? Sure. Propel is a software company based in Brooklyn that aims to help people in financial need to get back on their feet. We really aim to make safety net services like the food stamp program more user-friendly so that they can be more effective at restoring Americans to financial health. Our core product these days is a free smartphone app that's called Fresh EBT. It's kind of like a mobile banking app for the EBT card. So there are 40 million Americans who get food stamp benefits on EBT cards. And when they go grocery shopping using their food stamp benefits to buy food at the supermarket, they have to call a 1-800 number on the back of their card so they can check their balance. We build sort of the replacement for that phone call. And the Fresh EBT app is intended to be not just a way to check your balance and see your transaction history and manage your, your food stamp benefits, but also uh, more broadly as an on-ramp towards greater financial health. So we also help our users do things like save money on groceries. We help them find the social services that they qualify for but have not signed up for. We help them find jobs or job training programs, um, really using the fact that there's this pain point around checking your balance on your food stamps as an entry ramp towards how do we help you get towards broader financial health. Oh, interesting. So it almost sounds like you're using this a way to grow a user database or a user population that you can then help in other ways. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not really a data play. We're not trying to aggregate information about our users so much as we are trying to build trust and loyalty in terms of having an app that is constantly providing something of value to the user um, that inspires that person to come back and to trust us with bigger and bigger uh, recommendations. It starts with providing value around, you know, we're going to save you time so you don't have to call this stupid phone number so you know how much food you can buy into now we can help you stretch your benefits by a day per month by helping you clip grocery coupons or find ways to save money into, you know, the types of things we're doing around employment. And I think as the company continues to grow, we really see ourselves continuing to walk down that road of as we gain more and more trust from this user, how do we try to help them through more and more challenging components of kind of to climb out of poverty. Well, and I have two two thoughts. So I believe in prepping for this episode, I saw that your engagement numbers are insane. Like how, how frequently are users using the Fresh EBT app? 
Well, so about 2 million Americans use the Fresh EBT app at least once a month. Um, and that, you know, there are approximately 20 million households in the United States that get food stamps. So we're roughly 10% of all households that qualify for food stamps and use it already also use the Fresh EBT app. The average person who uses the app opens about nine times per month. And that actually lines up uh, approximately to like one to one and a half times um, each time that someone goes, goes shopping. I think it's a good mental model. It's sort of, you know, if you're if you have these food stamp benefits, you're using to purchase food. Um, you probably need to check your balance when you're going grocery shopping to know how much you can spend. And those are the times that people use the app on a really recurring basis. So you know, nine times a month. That's that's a lot. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. You know, user engagement. Does that speak to the fact that you? I guess backing up. Why did you pick this problem? Um, so thinking about ways that technology products can help low income Americans broadly. Why start here? Well, let me make sort of the, the theoretical top-down argument, and then I'll give you sort of the bottoms-up version of it. And I think the, the reality for us, for us was like somewhere in the middle. Part of the reason we started with the food stamp program is sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs argument of like, you know, we're interested in building software that fights poverty somehow. We know that poverty is complex and has many different components and can't be solved with a single app, and that's okay. But like, hey, look, if you can't put food on the table it's going to be real hard for you to do the other types of things needed to, to make any meaningful impact on your financial health. Mm, and so, so it's hard to, it's look hard at, to you know, make time to go look for bigger, better jobs, get more education if you're hungry. Yeah, right. Just this very simple argument of like, let's, let's like try to take care of basic human needs, which is what the food stamp program in the United States is, is meant to do, right? It's a large program that is taxpayer funded that aims to help people that are low income by providing them an extra cash subsidy that they can use to purchase food. So that's sort of the, the, the theoretical reason for why we started with food stamps. The practical reason was, you know, when I started Propel back in the summer of 2014 through a program called Blue Ridge Labs, I spent a lot of time talking to low-income Americans about their different needs and challenges. And a couple of things came out of that. The first was that I heard a lot about the food stamp program and about people's challenges with navigating it. It just really, from the way, the way that people talked about it, made it sound like it was really just an important part of a lot of people's lives, which makes sense from the Maslow's hierarchy of needs argument of, yeah, it's like, it's how you put food on the table. If this fails or if something goes wrong, that's a massive impact and a huge, like a huge change to your daily life because now you've got to figure out how to, you know, buy a lunch and dinner for your kids. The first thing that, that I did early on in this process, before I even started the company, but while I was still trying to learn more about you know, the, the challenges in, in the space and what opportunity there might be to, to, to try to address some of those, is I went to a food stamp office in Brooklyn to apply for food stamps myself. And the first thing that you see when you walk into one of these offices is that there are like 100 people all waiting in line. Uh, they're waiting to see a human caseworker and fill out a paper form. And most of them are passing the time and have a smartphone in their hands, right? So in, in a single snapshot, there's, this, there's this, this, this kind of notion that social services in the United States are behind the times of what the technology is capable of, right? Um, having come from a place like Facebook, you know, the, the ability to put those forms on the smartphone is not something that like is unsolved by tech or is a particularly hard software engineering problem. Like those are things that can be done pretty straightforwardly. The challenges are somewhere else. And part of the reason that I started Propel is sort of the realization that the skill set of Silicon Valley and building really, really crisply defined and well-designed user software is exactly the kind of thing that's holding back social services from reaching its true potential. I have lots of questions for you that we can cover later, I think, on <laughs> the role of the, the free market interacting with government programs and where the challenges oh, lie, yeah. if not with the technology. Um, but so, so you're going to this benefit center and you're seeing so many people why then the, the Fresh EBT app? To fast forward a little bit, you know, we continue to spend a lot of time talking to people who receive uh, food stamp benefits. The official name for the program is the SNAP program. So I'll use those terms pretty interchangeably throughout here. But um, when we talk to SNAP participants about their experience using these uh, SNAP benefits, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to people in grocery stores. Because the way you spend your food stamps is it's on a debit card that's loaded automatically once per month. The, um, the actual benefit can only be spent at an authorized grocery store on unprepared food items. And so spending time talking to people in grocery stores in low-income neighborhoods who are there to purchase food using their SNAP benefits, one of the things that we heard time and again is that actually the first thing you do when you go grocery shopping is you call the 1-800 number on the back of your phone so you can check your balance. 
And we asked people to call that number for us and if they would mind if we listened in as they called that number. What we heard time and again is that actually lots of people have their EBT card numbers fully memorized because they're so used to typing them in each time they have to go and check their balance. And so it just seemed like kind of an odd system in light of the fact that, you know, if you have a debit card that is not an EBT card, if you have a debit card from a major bank, there's probably a free app that that bank is putting out that allows you to check your balance and see your transaction history. There are probably a whole host of, of different software companies out there that help you to transfer money or pay your bills or make an investment. And we asked why those types of tools didn't exist for low-income Americans using the SNAP program. That's interesting. We talked a little bit earlier about how the people that are developing products, right, they tend to solve problems that they understand or that they're exposed to themselves. So I don't know whether you have a lot of people who earn, who um, use SNAP benefits on your team, but how do you get around the challenge of once you've identified this problem, making sure that you really have a team that can empathize with these issues and understand what the day-to-day life looks like? Yeah, it's really hard. And it's one of the core challenges that we have faced in the past and will continue to face in the future. So um, our approach is to put a couple of different pieces together. The first is that we do have a number of team members who received uh, food stamp benefits at some point in their personal past. Not everyone on the team, um, but certainly like that's something that we consider a huge plus when you're looking to build a team like ours, um, is that if you're somebody who has personal experience with the safety net, personal experience with poverty or financial instability, you may um, have a really strong understanding of you know, how we should use our position to go solve those challenges. So that's number one, is try to hire people who are, are personally experienced with the challenges that we solve. Number well, two... And just to like, interrupt you, I'm, I'm curious. So when it comes to diversity and hiring, people tend to... I think one of the... Compl- whatever that means. In this case, it's a diversity of financial experience, let's say. Companies tend to say, there's a pipeline problem. We don't have enough great candidates who fit the criteria of diversity that we're, we're looking for. Is it just as simple as probing for that? I mean, how have, have you found that to be the case, that it's, it's still trying to, to do so? Well, it's, it's definitely still trying. It's a little bit more challenging to, to look for that background than it is for other ones. Because, I mean, just from like a number standpoint, the, the unfortunate truth is, is that it's really hard to find people who have that background and who are sort of like the right fit to join a you know, fast-growing software startup that needs to build this kind of software quite quickly. Here's an example of like one way that we've uh, tried to make that work. Our junior software engineer on our team was actually formerly a user of the Fresh EBT app. So we met her when she was doing a coding bootcamp, um, and she was still receiving SNAP benefits at the time. And we spoke to her about her usage of the Fresh EBT app. And then so when she graduated from the coding bootcamp, we hired her on the team first as an intern and now as a software engineer. And so while I don't think that's necessarily a thing that we you know, fundamentally have to do in order to get people who understand this, this kind of user base and the types of problems that we're trying to solve, I do think it's something that we're going to continue to invest in. And I had interrupted you. What were numbers two, et cetera, of ways that you <laughs> try to get that user empathy? I think another one for us is just a focus on user research. So, you know, there's this kind of uh, common thread in, in consumer tech that one of the reasons that you should solve a problem that you understand personally using your company is that then you'll know uh, whether or not you were successful. And like, that's the best feedback loop, right? If, you know, I, I previously worked at Facebook, it was pretty easy for Facebook employees to figure out whether Facebook products are working or not, because, you know, do you personally use those products? Do your family and friends find value from something like Facebook groups? If not, then like that should be a pretty, pretty good signal that you're not doing a really good job. There are no current Propel employees that are on food stamps. And so I think what that means for us is even if we hire people who have that background, it's hard for us to know when we push a new feature, if that's actually solving the pain point that we intended it to solve. Mm. And so for us, one of the best ways we have to, to try to make more progress against that is to just talk to our users a lot. So this means we have a commitment to bring our users into our office, to go into their communities, to go across the country to where our users live, to engage them in conversations, usually in a format of about one hour, usually it's one to two Propel employees and somebody who uses the app. Um, and the topics range from their experience using Fresh EBT, their experience with safety net services, how they grocery shop, their financial habits, all those different types of things. So I think that's something that we've continued to invest quite a bit in. 
It's funny, a lot of companies understand that they're supposed to talk to their users, but I think they can find the gathering of that feedback to be really overwhelming. What kind of process do you put in place to make that feasible and I guess more importantly, usable at the end of the day? I'd say really hypothesis testing is important for us. And it can be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. I think there's a real tension between being driven by your own instincts and being open to learning something from the people that you're talking to, which is the whole point. Um, but I do think there's there's a challenge. Like if you go too far to the other end, which is I'm just going to listen to what people tell me, I'm just going to do exactly what they say. You know, sometimes people just can't really articulate exactly what they want the solution to be. You know, they can tell you what their problem is. They can tell you what's difficult, but they can't necessarily always describe like what the ideal solution ought to be. And so I think from our point of view, the way that we approach it is like, Let's listen as well as we can, specifically focus on pain points and problems that really understand the levels possible. And then when we talk about solutions or talk about how people try to address those challenges, um, let's go in with a hypothesis, right? And that may not be a thing we necessarily, we necessarily tell the user, but it's a thing that we always, we always keep in our mind is like, what are we trying to, like, to test? Or even just identifying what's the question, it sounds like, is a, is a key piece that I think people often overlook. Totally. So. You'd mentioned earlier that the tech behind all this isn't... I mean, some of this is obviously more complex as the product has grown, but, but some of these technical components aren't, aren't super difficult. What are some of the logistical obstacles or maybe systematic issues that you run into as, you've, as Papella's grown? Yeah, and, and, and I want to clarify, it's not necessarily that the tech isn't complicated. It's quite complicated. It's just that you know, we don't have to invent the next artificial intelligence algorithm in order to build the company that we're trying to build. I think there are lots of companies that are sort of trying to be at the cutting edge of, of technology and that they have to be in order to be successful. I think our premise is that actually the cutting edge like, is sort of not the point. The point is that the, the technical tools that already exist in many cases just haven't really been applied to the low-income context. And that there's a lot of good that can be done and an interesting kind of a business that can be built by just taking those same tools and using them to solve the problems that others aren't necessarily thinking about. So to go back to your question about what kind of operational challenges there are, I think if I can just be very tangible and practical for a second, I mean, there are, are lots of operational challenges with managing this particular type of product. You know, the SNAP program, which we are huge, huge fans of here at Propel, I don't want to mix that up. I mean, we are, we are like very fundamentally believers that the safety net taxpayer supported and publicly administered in the United States is a really positive thing, is run in a state-by-state fashion. So... Yes, there's one kind of uh, federal SNAP program, but there are really 50 small little state SNAP programs, each of which has its own like own mechanics, own people who administer the program, own technical challenges, and so on. And so because we're trying to build a product that works throughout all, all 50 states of the United States, that's one of the, the, the fundamental operational challenges that we have to, to get over is, is really just that. I'd say another operational challenge that is something that we, we very readily take on is that with 2 million people that use Fresh EBT each month, um, as with any consumer product, our users write to us with questions and, and with different types of needs. Sometimes those are issues that we can help with, right? Sometimes those are like, I can't log in or something else like that. But a lot of times they're, they're questions that are like much more challenging for us to even think about, right? It's things like, hey, there's no problem with the app. There's no problem with food stamps. I just don't have enough food. Like, what do I do now? Or it's something like, Hey, this is not even about food. It's that like I was evicted from my home and now I'd like, I don't know what to do. What do I like? Where do I look for help? And those are the types of things that we, uh, we take a lot of pride in trying to help folks navigate. We sort of see this as like as cases where people may have fallen through the cracks of more formal systems and, and um, the types of organizations that are traditionally aligned to help those types of situations. But I think we see that as we have this opportunity and this relationship with consumers where they're trusting us with these really deep personal problems. So how do we use that opportunity to point them towards the folks that are doing really fantastic work in the space, whether those are food banks or social workers or state social services or any other type of organization? You know, in, in most of the cases, the work that we try to do is just to aggregate the resources available and point people towards those types of things. And that's a huge operational challenge, too. Well, and you mentioned earlier that this idea of it's maybe one federal program, but it's administered by 50 different states. What does that look like? Is that just 50 different sets of rules and then 50 different processes that could change over time at any given time? 
You know, uh, the programs function similarly at a high level. So because of, of the way that the program is, is, is federally funded, that federal funding is tied to a lot of the high-level constraints around the program. So the notion of having an EBT card, having benefits that are deposited once a month, um, having a high-level formula for how the, the benefit amount is determined, those are all kind of federal choices and fairly consistent state-to-state. State. The things that are different state-to-state state is like the card actually looks physically different in each state. In many states, the cards have a different name. So it's not known as the EBT card to consumers necessarily, or maybe it's not even known as the SNAP program. For example, in California, it's the CalFresh program. And then the technical details of the implementation of the card are usually different state to state. And that's because each state contracts with a private company called an EBT processor to administer the card, the underlying payment rails, and the actual servicing of the product itself. So these are the technical details that we have to be immersed in in order to provide a really good consumer experience throughout all 50 states. What about with dealing with government programs? Have you run into any issues there? Certainly, there's, there's a lot of complexity in just having to understand the way the program works across all 50 states. As one very tangible example, the day of the month that somebody will receive their next, their next food stamps will, will actually vary state by state. And each state has its own set of rules around how someone will receive their food stamps. So there are, are some states where just everyone will receive their food stamps on the first of the month. But in certain states, it's more complicated. It's something like people will receive their benefits between the first and the 12th of each month. And that 12th uh, and the particular day actually depends on a bunch of things like the last number of your card or your birth date or various other things on a state-by-state basis. And so our approach there is that because we have users in all 50 states, it's important for us to understand those kind of state-by-state rules and differences and for us to be able to promote those to the consumer. So this is one thing that software is, is actually pretty good at. So we can say, well, this is someone who lives in Pennsylvania, and so therefore we should point them towards the Pennsylvania version of the rules. So you, you had mentioned in there this idea that some states might even vary which date they're just distributing the benefits on. Um, it sounds like intentionally, if it's based on somebody's birth date, why would a, a government want to do that? Is there any benefit to them? Well, it's actually uh, a pretty smart policy decision. And it comes from the fact that because there are 40 million Americans who get food stamp benefits, those benefits often tend to get spent close to the time that they're newly distributed. And so what could happen in a state where all the benefits were distributed up on the same day of each month is that the grocery industry really sees an impact on that. So uh, if you imagine that you know, roughly 10% of the citizens of that particular state are receiving food stamp benefits, if all those benefits are loaded on the exact same day, then you actually might get a spike in shopping behavior on the very next day. And so the oh, wow. idea of, of distributing those benefits throughout the month on some kind of randomly assigned kind of basis, and that's really what the card number or the birth date thing is based on, is really just trying to find some random way to bucket people per state is a way to kind of spread out the, the kind of times that people uh, go shopping. Yeah. And, and so we had Wendy De La Rosa on the podcast a few months ago. And one of the things she shared with us is that people do, as you, you've kind of alluded to here, spend most of their money, not right away, but that these benefits are not lasting the, the full month. Can you walk us through what that sort of looks like? Yeah. So we've worked with Wendy and her team over the last couple of years to really take a look at both the lay of the land as it currently exists. So how people spend their SNAP benefits as it currently stands. And are there opportunities for us to build features that actually um, help people to stretch their benefits further? So maybe starting with how people spend their benefits now. You know, there are lots of challenges around the amount of SNAP benefits that people receive. And I think the, the kind of high level headline is that SNAP benefits are just insufficient for most Americans. And that's because the average benefit amount is about $230 per month. And the average family size is roughly, you know, two or so people. And so if you think about what it means to try to try to purchase food for a family of two, when you only have something like 200 some dollars per month to spend, you know, the math gets pretty challenging. Um, and so I think that's one thing that we see in relation to our users through data all the time is that most people will run out of benefits quite quickly. There's a stat that about 80% of people who use Fresh EBT will use the majority of their benefits within the first week or so of each calendar month. Mm. So, so as couple, you mentioned earlier, that idea that people are running out to the grocery store in sort of an unevenly distributed way sounds to be really backed up by the data here. Yeah. 
it's certainly backed up by the data. It's also backed up by the kind of qualitative stories that we hear from our users. So those often fall into the category more of like, if you realize that people spend a lot of the benefits in the first week of each month, it actually makes it more likely that by the end of each month, you've really got nothing left. And we hear this from our users all the time, that the last week of each month tends to be really, really challenging. Um, that that's the week when people are, are borrowing food from family or friends. They're using food pantries more frequently. And about 12% of our users tell us that actually in the last calendar week of each month, they're skipping meals. There's real human need that is still happening in the United States, despite the fact that we've got this great and really broad kind of food stamp program that's aiming to fight hunger. The result of that uh, on kind of an, a rolling basis, though, is that if the last week of each month is really, really tough and you're skipping meals, then you get your $200 deposit. It's going to be pretty challenging to make the, you know, the decisions with kind of a full month of setting a budget in mind. And so that kind of just, it just perpetuates this kind of cycle of, well, you, you know, spend your benefits really quickly in the first week of each month, you run out by the last week of each month. Then for the next month, it, it's way easier to just to kind of spend really quickly again, which I think is, is one of the things that puts people in a really precarious kind of uh, food situation. Yeah. And, and as Wendy described to us on the show, um, you've worked with the Common Sense Lab to sort of bring behavioral economics in to maybe make this product a little better. What specifically is the feature set you tested in that space? Yeah. So we worked with Wendy and team a couple of years ago to, to test out a feature and to run an RCT uh, that was really focused on how do we help people stretch their benefits throughout the month. The specific implementation of the feature that we chose was the notion of a budget per week. So just the very simple idea that like if you get 200 bucks in SNAP benefits per month, let's divide that by four, your average weekly budget is $50. So instead of showing you you have a $200 allocation to spend, let's instead show you that the weekly budget for you is $50. Now, to be clear, that's not changing what you can actually spend. So you can still go to the store and spend the full amount if you want. But the notion of the first number you see when you open the app isn't the larger number. It's actually the smaller number. And it's a reminder that if you want to make the stretch throughout the month, you've really got to anchor yourselves towards that $50 number um, was sort of the, the, the core thesis of the experiment. So what we found was that actually people who received the experimental treatment of just seeing the weekly balance uh, spent their benefits by about two days slower per month. And that was with kind of uh, no loss in nutritional fidelity. And so I think one of the conclusions that we reached was that we were actually able to help people stretch their benefits by the equivalent of about six meals per month. That's amazing. You know, when I first heard those numbers, I thought, so, you know, 80% of people are spending the bulk of their benefits in about nine days. To make that 11 days, it doesn't sound like a game changer, you know, assuming there's 30 days in the month. But when you put it in terms of that six extra meals they weren't going to eat, that's a big deal. Right. And when you think about the, the just kind of the size and scope of the food stamp program, I mean, it's 40 million people and the federal government spends nearly $70 billion per year to fund the program. So if we're able to make it even 5% more efficient, we're talking, you know, several billion dollars in gain of just taxpayer money uh, stretching further. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers customer research delivered. Customer research delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about customer research delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. What are some of the misconceptions about the food stamp space that you run into? You know, I think there are a number of misconceptions about the food stamp program, about safety net services in general, but the food stamps program in particular, some of which are like quite practical, just factual mistakes, and some of which are more beliefs and attitudes that I don't think are actually too reflective of, of the way that the reality works. Some of the mistaken beliefs are things like people can spend their food stamps on, on lottery tickets or on, on hot food or on alcohol. Those are all not true. And 
in fact, it's, it's actually never really been the case that someone could spend their food stamp benefits on those types of categories of items. Um, and for better or for worse, we have a system here where uh, the actual benefits themselves are restricted to being spent on unprepared food at grocery stores. I think the attitudinal uh, misconceptions are oftentimes rooted in just kind of a lack of understanding of the challenges that low-income Americans face on a daily basis and how people spend their time and energy. So I think one of the things that we see in just communicating with low-income folks about their daily experiences, just how much time and energy goes into making just the kind of the basic stuff to be able to live in society actually work. I think the food stamp program itself is actually a good example of that. For someone who's low income, the amount of time and energy it takes to think about how to apply for this program, make sure you're still certified on the program, to receive your benefits on an EBT card, to make sure you know how much you have left on that card, to know which date you're going to receive your food stamps. That's just extra mental burden to think about how you're going to put food on the table, which is perhaps a thing that uh, people who are not low income don't spend too much of their mental bandwidth thinking on. So I think that's, that's one of the, the components. You know, People who are more intellectual than I am, um, poverty often describe it as kind of uh, like it's a death by a thousand cuts kind of that's the day-by-day experience of like every single service you use or every experience that you come across is just slightly more frustrating than you would like or takes slightly more time than you would like. And as a result, the challenge of kind of navigating poverty and making a meaningful positive impact on your life is just really, really difficult and compounded by kind of the lack of usability. Well, and you had mentioned in there that food stamps aren't eligible for hot or prepared foods. What are the consequences of that? And is that something you'd like to see change? It's not something that I normally take a stance on because, you know, really as a technology company, our position is less about policy change and more about we'd love to make the existing system to work more efficiently. And we think there are opportunities and just in reducing the amount of silos that we see between these types of different programs and sectors. The hot and prepared food thing in particular, I think can be a little bit frustrating to a lot of folks for whom hot and prepared food, you know, it's not some kind of extravagance where someone's taking themselves out for a treat. In many cases, it is um, this notion of the time and money trade-off. So I think um, going back to your question about what are the misunderstandings or misconceptions about low-income Americans, I think to oversimplify, one thing that I've heard before is that like, sometimes there's a clear trade-off between time and money. And depending how many financial resources you have. If you have no financial resources, you should always trade off your own time in favor of money. And if you have tons of money, then you're willing to trade your own money in favor of time. In reality, I found that to be not the case. That oftentimes for low-income folks, their time is just as constrained as their money. Right? When you talk to someone who has three kids and is trying to juggle between like dropping them off at daycare and picking them up in the right place and taking them to the doctor and going grocery shopping and all these other all these types of things, it can be quite rational to decide to spend $5 in order to get something that, that can save you 20 minutes, right? And so I think the same thing applies to the hot food question, which is that I think in many cases, it really is a time and money trade-off for a lot of people. And right now, it's not a choice that low-income folks get to make because the program has really dictated that they've got to make their choice for the unprepared food at grocery stores. Well, you talked about how you know this community really has a lot, a lot to deal with. And I think that was probably not made easier earlier this year, at the end of 2018, early 2019, there was the longest government shutdown in the history of America. And that did end up affecting SNAP benefits recipients. Yeah, that's right. You know, a lot of attention was paid, and rightfully so, on federal employees who were furloughed, and some of which had to receive SNAP benefits as a result of that. But there was another impact that was actually significantly larger in terms of number of people reached, which was that the food stamp program which also draws upon federal funding, was kind of at risk for the period during the federal shutdown. The good news is that nobody actually missed their food stamp benefits. Um, and that was because of a really heroic effort that, you, that the USDA at the federal level and state governments all put together to be able to issue the February uh, food stamp allotment in January. So as far as I'm aware, it was a fairly unprecedented move to basically to distribute twice the benefits in January and then to have no benefits issued in February. And so for families that received food stamp benefits, that was certainly better than just totally missing a payment um, because they had extra benefits to use in January. But from our point of view, it introduced a very, very real challenge, which is because we spent a lot of time talking to our users and working on budgeting features and thinking about how to help people manage their food stamp benefits. We knew that this was going to be a really challenging time 
And then in particular, because no one was going to receive benefits in February, that the last half of February was going to be a very, very challenging time for a lot of people as they ran out of their food stamp benefits. Oh, so that makes sense. Um, I mean, if people are typically running out of food after about nine days, to think that you know they're going to be able to budget two months worth of benefits much better is somewhat unrealistic. Right. And to be clear, I don't think this is any fault of people who receive food stamp benefits. I think it's, it's very human to have trouble setting a budget. So if you imagine someone who receives two paychecks at once and then just completely misses on their next paycheck, the amount of challenge and kind of volatility that would introduce to your finances. I think we just saw the same thing through the food stamp program at a massive national scale. So how did the Fresh EBT app change to adapt to this sort of unusual set of circumstances for its users? Well, the first thing that we did was measure the impact off the bat. So because benefits were distributed in January, we noticed that about a third of the February food stamp benefit was spent before uh, February 1st. And so just as sort of a portrait of of sort of the challenge that families were going to have in February, it became quite clear that people were spending their February benefits before the month even started, and thus uh, things were going to be tough by the end of the month. So we spun up three concurrent projects focused on helping people to navigate this challenge. Um, The first one was just to help people understand exactly what was happening. You can imagine something like this happens where, you know, two benefits are issued in January. There's a lot of misinformation about what's going on. And so Fresh EBT was a massive source of communication about exactly what was happening to the program and why people were receiving two benefits in January and that no one was going to receive benefits in February. So there were a lot of rumors going around, for example, that because of the shutdown, your EBT card was not going to work at the store anymore. And that's not true. The card uh, is completely functional regardless of the shutdown. But people who who believed in that myth were probably more likely to go spend their benefits all at once and try to spend several hundred dollars and stock up on food, which is not a productive behavior. So that was really number one. We helped about 3 million households know about what was happening to their benefits and why they were receiving their February benefits in January and answered questions through an FAQ. We ultimately served about 12 million impressions of content related to the shutdown to food stamp recipients throughout the country. The second way that we aim to help was really based on feedback that we heard from our users. So when we talked to people about, okay, you got two benefits in January, you're not going to receive any in February, how are you going to make ends meet? What are you going to do? One of the most popular answers we heard was actually, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend like these benefits that I received for February aren't there. I'm just going to pretend that it's not there. And so, you know, through the help of of Wendy and the Common Sense Lab, we pioneered this new feature that was really focused on taking that user story and making it into an actual product feature. So we built the ability to hide some of your benefits, which really just means um, when we show your balance, we show the amount that you have chosen to show and have hidden the remainder. So just to use a hypothetical, if you get $300 in benefits per month, in January, you would have received $600. And so you can choose to say, I'm going to go in and hide $300 of those food stamp benefits, show those to me on February 15th, which is the date that I would have received uh, my February benefits. So it's sort of a way to like trick yourself into uh, mentally categorizing that as a February uh, snap insurance. When did you know you were going to have to build that? Because one of the problems with the government shutdown was that there was a lot of uncertainty of if and when it was going to end. Um, So in your case, that might not have even been a problem that you were going to have to support your users through. How early did you have to start thinking about developing those solutions and implementing them? Yeah, that's right. So we, we built that feature over a weekend. We sort of had the idea about it on Friday, started testing it on Monday and shipped it to our user base by the middle of that week. Uh, specifically, early food stamp benefits were issued on January 20th or before. And so we really felt it was important to make sure that we, get that, uh, that we got that feature shipped to users as quickly as possible after January 20th. And so I think we actually launched it to the full public on the 22nd. Wow, that's amazing. Well, and I'm wondering, I guess this is, this is a question about how government programs interact with the free market. In many ways... People are critical of government, the government and the government programs, regulations, um, and perhaps their inability to keep up with technology. Technology moves so quickly. How do you feel you'd like to see other technologists or other you know, entrepreneurs or free market proponents interacting with government programs to maybe make them better? 
Or do you feel like we should be changing the system more broadly? I really think this is, this is a case of we should try to do everything in our power to make our government more functional for us. And in some cases, that means working to change the government from inside. So there are lots of great organizations and lots of great people that are technologists within either state governments or city governments or federal governments that are trying to change the way that those places do business in order to produce better services for their constituents. So these are folks like NAVA, like uh, Code for America, like the USDS at the federal level that are really trying to like push this kind of slow changing revolution of technology and modernizing the way that our government works from the inside. Um, and I think they're doing fantastic work. I wish more people were actually doing that kind of work. I think it deserves more funding and more attention because I think that that is really one way to, to fundamentally change the delivery of these services long term. And I don't think that's going away. Um, but part of the reason that we exist as Propel as a third party for profit entity that's outside of government is that I think there's also a need for the private sector to really step up in a lot of these cases. And that historically, the private sector hasn't pulled its weight. I think historically, there's sort of this expectation that like, well, the government's bad, so the only way to change or uh, not bad, but it, it's just it's, it's not efficiently doing the delivery of services. Um, and so we just kind of throw up our hands and maybe try to elect a new leader or something. But that there's there are very real ways that, that private sector companies like Propel, you know, can make a positive impact on consumers right away. And we can do that in ways that are complementary um, and supportive of the way that the public sector functions now. So I really think that there's a role for both to play. And I think it's it's a mistake to say that, like, the fact that these public services can be challenging or aren't fulfilling their promise to constituents means that we just have to wait for them to fix themselves that there actually are things that we can do through the private sector, through technology, that can really make a, a pretty large difference. What's some of the other low-hanging fruit that you see in this space? You know, obviously, Propel can't do it all, certainly not tomorrow, at least. And what are some other opportunities where you think technology can really have an impact? I think that, you know, we started Propel, like one of the original descriptions that I had of Propel was we're like TurboTax, we're like TurboTax for the food stamps program. So it was this notion of the interface between the government and the constituent had a lot of friction. So in the same sense that TurboTax exists to help someone to file their taxes because the official form is difficult to fill out, I had this thought that like, what if we applied that same model to various other government services, in particular to ones faced by people who are in financial trouble? And so while we build services focused on food insecurity and on safety net services, I actually, I, I think there are really adjacent and kind of analogous businesses that can be built thinking about the other types of things that the government is trying to serve people in. So whether that's the immigration process, uh, the bankruptcy process, the housing process, the healthcare process, those are all examples of categories where I think a company that's really focused on user experience and focused on really not trying to replace what the government's doing, because I don't think that's possible, but really, uh, really focused on supplementing and helping the the city, the state, and the federal government to meet their goals around those programs, those can be quite effective. It's funny. I agree with you wholeheartedly with the exception that... So it, it makes so much sense to me that there should be third-party sort of improved UX user experiences, user interfaces that allow people to more easily access all these government programs. And that seems like it would be really valuable. In a weird way, the only time I ever feel like I encounter that in the wild is when I'm accidentally being duped into a sort of scam-like company that sort of purports it's the government, but isn't. So I'm thinking about, um, I think the last time I had to renew my DMV license or get another mm. copy of my registration, the place that I found online wasn't the DMV, but I didn't know that until I had already paid extra to use their quote unquote beautiful interface. I'm wondering, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Because it should be that these are good solutions. And then why is it that, I don't know, I'm ending up encountering ones where it feels like they're trying to trick people. Totally. And I think it's, is not really ideal. I think there are lots of aspects of TurboTax's business and, and functionality that are pretty problematic. You're thinking about how they've influenced uh, legislation around taxes to keep the tax process complicated and the incentives mm -hmm. around that. So it's not necessarily a straightforward, you know, someone just needs to sit down and hack for a weekend and, and publish a bunch of things. I think what you're onto here is that there are lots of kind of institutional challenges with getting this right. And that I'm not, I'm also not advocating for just a purely free market, like uh, it's just a freewheeling, anyone can build it, anything they want that, lives, that sits on, on top of a public service necessarily. But to your point, I think that there's, there's like the correct middle ground here where we can look for parts of the experience where it actually can be really helpful to have a private company come in 
and provide a, a, you know, a service to consumers in a way that is still safe, that is truthful, that follows laws, that respects privacy. And that if those things are true, then consumers ought to have the choice of which interface they use. Well, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and ask you about, you mentioned you're a for-profit company. I'm wondering if we could back up a little bit and talk about some of the challenges you faced when you were raising capital, if any. Yeah. So at Propel, we're a for-profit software company. We always have been. As I mentioned, our free product to consumers is Fresh EBT. We don't charge people who use that app at all. We also don't charge any government for the app. So the way that we do make money is by charging the different companies and nonprofits and different types of organizations that run promotions on the platform. And we specifically curate those programs by hand so that the promotions are really focused on improving financial health in some capacity and very specifically on helping someone who uses the app to either save money or to make more money. Well, to interrupt, so, you know, I think if this yeah. is poorly executed, this is, this is the great opportunity for a, a company with a poor moral compass to advertise payday loans and those kinds of things. And I am assuming that's exactly. not what you're advertising here. Exactly. Our customers are grocery stores that want to offer our users a chance to save money or they're couponing platforms or they are various other you know, social services or government benefit programs that people can sign up for because they're already on food stamps. Our customers are also the employers who want to hire people with food stamp benefits, uh, whether those are for full-time jobs, part-time jobs, or seasonal jobs. Um, and we promote all of those on the platform. So to your point, it's really important that we are really careful about who we work with. We really only work with a small selection of customers in this space who meet our standards of providing clear, tangible value to our users who are kind of uh, have been pretty thoroughly vetted in terms of you know, providing services that are, are pro-social and consistent with our social mission. Yes, we do it because we're a mission-driven company and it would be really disappointing to us if we felt like we were not meeting that mission in search of profits instead. But also like there's a there's just like a like a pure like practical reason we have to do it, which is that we operate in an industry that's highly regulated. And that we need to work with state governments, we need to work with nonprofits who do social services, and that we couldn't face those folks if we were scamming people through the platform or we were promoting payday loans or any other thing like that. And so I think there are good checks and balances already being built into that space where we have the, the moral incentive, but also the financial incentive to actually do things that are pro-social. That's great. And alignment of incentives is always so important. And so you are a for-profit company. It sounds like you're advertising, but you're doing it in a way that supports your users, which is awesome. What are some of the challenges you faced when you were raising? Yeah. You, know, you, guys, you guys just closed um, your Series A at uh, the end of 2018. Is that right? That's right. We raised a $12.5 million Series A at the end of 2018. If you will go back in history with me a few years. I think, you know, we really had a, a hard time in the first couple of years getting Propel off the ground because I underestimated how difficult it, it was going to be to raise money for this type of company. You know, I had kind of thought that we're building this great product. I'm really excited about it. I think that this is the kind of thing that investors ought to be excited about because it's new and it's different and it's a new market. But I'm a former I, Facebooker. I mean, it's not like you're just showing sure, up off the, right. off the bus. <laughs> yeah, but I think I was overconfident. And I think I underestimated just how little most investors understood about poverty and about safety net services and about the need for a product and company like ours. So what that meant was for the first couple of years, it was just a lot of me going to investors and just striking out. <laughs> it was me pitching the company and getting blank stares and me spending an entire half hour explaining what the food stamp program was or answering questions like, do poor people really have phones? Or like, do they know how to read? Like, it's like that kind of stuff. I think one of the things that I realized and internalized from that process is actually as an entrepreneur pitching to investors, it's, you know, sometimes there are hills that are just too big to climb. That if you pitch an investor who has never thought about poverty before or has never thought about food insecurity or has never thought about someone who is really, you know, trying to set a close budget and if they go over that budget, there are real dire circumstances. If they just, if that's so foreign to them, then that's probably not the investor for us. You know, one of the things that I've been so excited about over the last couple of years is that we've had the opportunity to work with a variety of investors who really do fundamentally understand the challenges that we're trying to solve, either through personal experience or through, you know, something else in, in their life that has kind of made them understand um, the types of challenges that we solve for consumers. And those are the investors that we're really excited to have in the company. Uh, it's not people who have doubts about the fact that low-income Americans need really great tech. It's people who understand that and that are looking to work with us to kind of make that function and scale. 
This isn't something I had planned to ask, but what's your competition look like in this space? I mean, are you the only ones doing this? Well, the problems that we solve for people are old, right? Those have been around for lots of different years. It's just that uh, historically, it's direct service nonprofits and it's state governments who solve these types of problems. You know, there are not a lot of for-profit software companies that are in this industry. You know, when I think about competition, I sort of don't, don't see that as a negative thing. In fact, I would love to have more, whether it's companies or nonprofits or governments, trying to do this type of work because I think the industry is, is still too thin. I don't, I don't think there are a sufficient number of people working on the problem. You know, in terms of the, the direct services that we provide and like other choices that a consumer might have when they have those types of challenges, you know, there are a number of state governments that have EBT apps to help you to check your balance. I think that's fantastic. We're actually totally in favor of those apps because in my opinion, you know, if you're a consumer who has a bank account, you've got a variety of different options out there for how you want to manage your bank account, how you want to manage your finances, you can switch banks, all those things. Um, and I think that competition actually creates a better end product for the consumer. I think the same principle is true for these government services and for the EBT card in particular, that if it's possible um, for the consumer to choose the best user experience, that's actually going to create the best thing for that person. What would you like Propel to be addressing 10 years from now, let's say? Because I know right now you're focusing on sort of a, a narrow problem in a, in a much bigger set of problems. Yeah, you know, when we step back and think about Propel, you know, I didn't start Propel to be a food stamp software company. I started it to be an anti-poverty software company. And again, I'm not so naive as to think that poverty is addressable through a single piece of software, that it's easy to make any meaningful impact on poverty as, as a whole. But when I think about poverty, it's largely defined in finances, right? And you know, we started with the food stamp program and the EBT card because it's sort of this financial service in disguise where people don't generally think of it as a financial product. They think of it as a government service, but it really is also a financial product. I mean, it's literally a payment card it's purchasing power, right? This is a financial services product. I think the future for us is really thinking about the finances of the households that we serve and looking for opportunities to get deeper and to make a more positive impact on their financial lives overall. So thinking about sectors like how people think about uh, housing and healthcare and childcare beyond just food purchasing and viewing that all through kind of a financial services lens of how are we able to kind of to guide this person through those different challenges so that they can ultimately improve their overall financial health. It's a big, it's a big challenge. Good luck. No, I'm, thank you. I'm, 10 years is a long time. <laughs> so Propel is hiring. Who are you looking for? Well, Propel is really looking for anyone who's excited about this mission. We're based in Brooklyn and we are a small but mighty team that is looking to grow over the next 12 months. Uh, we're in particular looking for software engineers people who have a design background, people who have a business or financial services background, um, or people who have kind of an operational and management experience kind of uh, context. We're really excited to meet people that are mission aligned. And that's really the first cut that we always take when looking at potential people to hire is that we want to hire people that will wake up every morning and be excited about the work because of the social mission and because of people that we are trying to serve. Amazing. With that, I'd love to turn to our Think a Little Different round. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? Universal basic income. My initial reaction to UBI was high skepticism combined with sort of a belief that it was just kind of social elites coming up with crazy ideas and ignoring the safety net. And, and can, you, can you say I, what I that is still, really briefly? Yeah, sorry about that. It's this kind of policy proposal that the government ought to provide a cash benefit to each member of society. It's been implemented on a number of smaller scales, uh, either on a city basis or there are a handful of countries outside the United States that have tried this on much smaller scales. Um, there's been sort of a brewing conversation about this throughout Silicon Valley and the broader country over the last 12 to 24 months in particular. I still think, to be honest with you, that it's quite a, quite a ways away from any kind of practical implementation. But the, the kind of the promise of it is this notion that, that especially as, as work changes in the United States and as automation changes what jobs are available, that the government needs to do something very different in terms of providing a safety net. And you've changed your mind about this. You thought that it used to be sort of pie in the sky and now you're more convinced? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the huge caveat here, of course, is that like 
the devil's always in the details. The implementation is uncertain. No one's gotten into the real details of how to implement this type of, of policy. But I think at a high level, the thing that's changed my mind is a deeper understanding of what is going to happen to the American economy as automation becomes very real over the next 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in particular, kind of the social contract around you know, someone's job and, and someone's career being a huge part of their kind of what they do and their core identity, like that's going to be a real challenge for us. What's an unpopular opinion that you hold? I'd say an unpopular opinion that I hold is that I think tech can do quite a bit more than maybe the average person thinks it can. Um, and I'm making that as kind of a, a broad general statement. But I think it's in 2019 in particular, it's easy to see the ways that tech has fallen short of its promise. You like companies like, like Facebook that really have fallen short of kind of their high promise. And it's easy to be skeptical of like tech, you know, really just can't achieve meaningful social progress or that it can't achieve like meaningful, lasting, positive impacts on people. And I think that's really not true. I think even if you look at the consumer software world, um, that I am still quite optimistic on the ability for things like smartphone apps to actually make a meaningful and measurable positive impact in people's lives. And that's what we're trying to do. See, my skepticism has grown over the last, I would say, 18 months or so. Do you feel like it's just that people have been focusing on the wrong problems? I think it's a lot of things. And and you asked for an unpopular opinion, right? So here it is. I think it is, one is definitely, it's a symptom of focusing on the wrong problems or building for a population that is different than the one that's using the product or not thinking through the proper use cases of your technology. And so I'm not trying to advocate responsibility for anyone who's building tech um, and who's making crazy promises about what that tech's going to do. It more for me comes from kind of a baseline belief in the power of technology to really really transform all sorts of different types of industries and to, to solve like real human problems. So I think if you think about, you know, the ways that uh, the technology industry has changed, whether it's transportation or healthcare or housing, that there actually have been real strides made over the last 20 years and that software has been a real accelerant of those types of things. Um, and that that's not going to stop. That's going to continue. And that it's sort of the, the job of both the private sector and the government to make sure that that continues in a positive way. I really do, I guess the thing that, that for me is maybe the unpopular opinion is that I have a core belief that these things are pointed towards positivity and that as long as we don't make a mistake, that we are sort of on the right track towards uh, the technology that we're building having a real positive impact on society. It's nice to hear that perspective. <laughs> it's nice to have, to talk to someone with a little faith in the system. I forget, you know, it's, it's been a long year. <laughs> oh, it's true. What's a common practice that you think will change in the next decade? I think one practice that we're already starting to see change, which is really going to accelerate. Um, you know, I talked before about the social contract around work and this notion of your worker provides you benefits and that like a lot of, of people's identity, as well as just the legal structure around taxes and so on, are really focused on traditional full-time employed work. And that that's something that is, has already started to change is really going to keep accelerating over the next 10 years. This isn't something I'd plan to ask, but it's something I, I wonder about myself. The gig economy. In certain ways, you can imagine it being helpful, because especially to people who, who are low income, because you can think of it as an opportunity to earn additional money outside of your maybe regular part-time job. But I'm getting increasingly concerned that the gig economy is actually going to sort of bite them in the ass in the end. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. And you can certainly feel... In, you can certainly pass if you choose to. Yeah, I think the gig economy is, is a perfect example of the kind of thing that could be hugely positive or hugely negative, depending on how the gig employers work, depending on what you know federal policy looks like around this and so on. I think the rise of the gig economy is complementary to sort of the different challenges that people are facing in the full-time workforce now. So I think that's one of the underlying challenges actually, is that, you know, there are fewer and fewer jobs that are paying well and have the type of flexibility that a lot of these gig employers have and have the kind of growth potential that people used to aspire to. So I think that is a like underlying socioeconomic challenge. I think gig employers themselves hold a lot of promise for low-income individuals, uh, especially in light of flexibility of scheduling. But I do think that if nothing is done from the federal policy perspective, that those employers have the chance to, to potentially harm people. And I don't think that's good. So on the Innovation for All podcast, we have conversations at the 
intersection of innovation, so that's business technology and entrepreneurship, and social impact. So questions like, you know, like you, what are ways that technology can help people who have been traditionally overlooked, but can also be questions about um, diversity in tech, like who is and isn't being included and what would those ideas look like? Who are two people you think would be interesting to have on the podcast? Hannah Calhoun is uh, one of the co-founders of the Blue Ridge Labs program. So I started Propel through Blue Ridge Labs and the philosophy of Blue Ridge Labs has become pretty deeply ingrained in Propel as sort of our founding thesis around building software that helps low-income Americans and that, you know, that people solve the problems that they understand. A lot of those, like the seeds of those thoughts came from Hannah and from the Blue Ridge Labs program. She has helped companies over the last five years start that are in some ways analogous to Propel because we started through the same program. Um, And so I think she's just seen a lot of iterations of entrepreneurs who are trying to solve a variety of these companies in a variety of different sectors. That's number one. Another founder who I think would be interesting um, and would have really strong thoughts on a lot of this stuff is Ethan Block, who's the founder of the Digit app. And so Digit is an automated savings tool. It's been quite popular, used by lots of people throughout the country. And I think Ethan's perspective is unique in this because of his kind of straddling the line between technology, personal finance, and banking, and thinking about the social impact and the the kind of positive direction that he's trying to push the average American through his product. Thank you for those. What's a resource you can suggest if someone wants to learn more about Propel or this space more broadly? Well, our website is joinpropel.com. Com. And on joinpropel.com, we've got a variety of different, whether they're news articles or videos or different types of articles published about Propel that often also talk about kind of the safety net at large or, you know, other players who we kind of see as our peers in the tech-enabled safety net. So I think that's a great place. Jimmy Chen, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you very much, Shana. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.